This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. One of New York's annual hysteria-inducing events started yesterday. And even if you were nowhere near Bryant Park, where it takes place, you probably know it's Fashion Week. Actually, it's Mercedes-Benz Fashion Week, but we won't split hairs. Fashion Week means many things to many people. The unveiling of exciting new designs, a reason to avoid Midtown entirely, a chance to feel either fat or smug. And for some, the unveiling of new styles by hot designers is a chance to make a fast buck. Take this scene from the fashion-based TV comedy, Ugly Betty. You know how every year there's the it item that comes out of Fashion Week? Hello, White Belt 2006. And you know how every year Eternal 18 has an exact knockoff of it mere days later? Who do you think tips them off for a big old bag of cash? What? You've been selling your integrity to some tacky mall store? Genius, count me in. Now, what characters Mark and Amanda are contemplating in that scene, tipping off a mall store to the exact design of the next big thing in fashion, might seem sleazy. But it's not necessarily illegal. That's because the situation with fashion design and intellectual property law is, to say the least, complicated. To get a slightly better understanding of the situation, I called Susan Scafidi. Scafidi is a visiting professor at Fordham Law School, and while intellectual property texts may line the shelves of her office, you can be assured that there's a fashion magazine tucked into her briefcase as well. Scafidi teaches the nation's first fashion law class at Fordham, and she blogs about fashion and the law at counterfeitchic.com. She joins me in the studio today. Susan Scafidi, welcome. Thank you so much, Nora. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, now explain to me the situation with intellectual property and fashion design. Is fashion protected by copyright, or isn't it, or what? Uh, The situation is dire. In fact, intellectual property protects only the margins of fashion design. That is to say, a fashion design itself is not protected, although the trademark in the label or the logo might be protected. And if it's functional fashion, if we've got a spacesuit or the latest from Nike, then maybe we could get a patent. But by and large, fashion designs themselves do not have copyright protection or any other form of intellectual property protection. What does that mean in the real world? That means there's a lot of knockoffs out there. And particularly for emerging designers, it's pretty tough because they come up with a great new design, and lo and behold, there's a design pirate waiting in the wings to knock it off. You send it down the runway, you send it down the red carpet, and sometimes before you can even get your designs in the stores, there are knockoffs available online or elsewhere. Why would fashion be protected by intellectual property law? What what are the arguments for it? Well, fashion is like any other art form. It so happens that fashion designers work in fabric instead of stone when they decorate the human body. Uh, And so like paintings, like sculpture, like movies, there's an argument that fashion is a creative medium and ought to be protected. So that's from the theoretical side. On the practical side, it's about those designers who, particularly with the speed of information as it is today, uh, with the Internet sending pictures of a runway show around the world, the same moment that the runway show is happening, it's really tough to stay in business because you spend lots and lots of time as a designer creating wonderful designs, months in progress, and then the best ones can be cherry-picked by your competitors immediately. You seem to fall pretty strongly on the side that it should be protected by intellectual property law. What are the arguments against it? 
Well, the the typical arguments against are consumer arguments, arguments that consumers say yes, but this way we can get it cheaper, which is true, no no doubt. On the other hand, no one says that copyright for hardback books should be abolished because we could print paperbacks or print pulp copies very quickly and get them out there before the uh, the ones for the hardcovers are gone from Barnes and Noble. So I think that that's the primary argument, tends to be a consumer-based argument. Um, of course, a lot of the rest of the world, particularly the other major fashion capitals, already have protection. So in some ways, the U.S. is really lagging behind an international trend in protection. We'll get back to that. But could you tell me what the history is of the way that fashion is treated by the law? Absolutely. Starting in about the uh, the 18th century, or really even earlier in the 17th, France started protecting, not ready-to-wear because that didn't even come about until the 19th century, but started to protect fabric patterns, much the way you would protect uh, paint on canvas. You can protect dye on fabric if it's done in a creative fashion. They had a reason to protect it. The industry was centered there, and there was a lot of a, a lot of business interest in doing so. Later on, when ready to wear came to the fore, France extended its copyright laws and its design protection laws to protect fashion just like everything else. So that happened in the late 19th, early 20th century. The United States, on the other hand, resisted, resisted. Why? Because the United States started its industry as a knockoff industry. We didn't have many creative designers in the first part of the 20th century in the United States. It was all about copying what came from France. Sometimes that was legitimate licensed copies by high-end U.S. department stores. Sometimes it was knockoffs. So there was really no constituency here to be protected. There were very, very few creative fashion designers. Now there is a large creative fashion industry in the U.S., and so the terms of the debate are shifting. But for a century, it's been France and later the EU and even now Japan and India against the U.S. and its very strong, very established copying industry. I have to say, when we're talking about this, the first thing that comes to mind when you say that all these places have strong copyright protection Mm -hmm. is that a lot of these countries are where the knockoffs come from, where they're <laughs> produced. How does that fit in? Well, the biggest culprit in the world at the moment in terms of where knockoffs are produced is actually China, uh, which also does not have a developed creative fashion industry. I think it will one day, and maybe then we'll see fewer knockoffs and fewer copies of all kinds in all industries coming from there. Uh, but uh, yes, I think you're right also that there are a certain amount of, of knockoffs that come from uh, countries with established fashion industries. H&M and Zara, for example, are, of course, European uh, companies, and they coexist with with creative fashion designers in Europe. It's a fine line, though. When they create a very exact copy, then they're liable. If they create something that just sort of follows a general trend set by creative designers, then they're fine. Sometimes they have to litigate a little bit to figure out where that line is, but by and large, they manage to coexist fairly well, which also gives consumers what they really want, which is access to cheap fashion while it's still in fashion. So if Zara copies something to exactly mm-hmm. in the UK or in Europe, they can be sued. They can. 
Absolutely. And we see that happen all the time. Now, very few of those suits actually go to trial. These companies tend to, as I understand it, treat it as a cost of doing business. They come a little too close to the line. They receive a complaint. There's a quick financial settlement, and everyone moves forward. But if Zara in the U.S. were to do the same? Home free. No action possible whatsoever from the original designer. So you're saying that the origins of of the legal protections offered to designers seem to be sort of in in the history of whether those places had creative design industries. What What's the more recent history? Well, actually, that's typical in almost all industries, Nora. That is to say, we didn't have a lot of protection for book publishing until we had American authors, and there was a call for it. The more recent history is that now that there is a, a large group of creative designers in the United States, Fashion Week in New York is really just 10 years old. So it's quite a, a recent development that there's designers coming together and acting in concert. Now that that has happened, designers have come back to the government, come back to Congress, and have once again asked for legislation that would extend to American designers protection similar to what their counterparts in Europe, Japan, and so forth have. The bill that is currently under consideration by Congress is called the Design Piracy Prohibition Act, and it would extend very short-term protection to fashion, not the full term of copyright, which, as you see my hands reach for the size of the room, is the life of the author plus 70 years, but merely three years, period, for fashion designs. It's a seasonal industry. If you can give a designer three years of protection before someone can copy them exactly, then they have time to introduce their original designs, maybe in an experimental, expensive line, knock themselves off, do a diffusion line that they can control, control the quality, the fit, the interpretation, and then they can release it to the world. You would forgive me for wondering if there's no H&M and if there's no Zara knocking off these fashions pretty closely, how popular they're going to be? Well, I think fashion is having a cultural moment. That is to say, everyone is excited to watch Project Runway or to go on style.com and see what the latest is from their favorite designer. So I think they would be popular in any case. It matters what celebrities wear, and people do want to follow that. But it's not necessary, I don't think, to have the exact design that was sent down the runway. If long red dresses go down the runway at the Academy Awards, great, buy a long red dress. But you don't necessarily have to have the exact Escada dress that was that w- was sent down. Yo. I am at the Betsy Johnson show in the purple tent, and I found it. The faux rabbit fur micro mini, the it item for 2007. Are you sure? Yes, everyone is going crazy. Misha Barton just knocked over Kate Bosworth. Oh, like that's so hard. Okay, just get over here. We have to steal it. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. My guest on the show today is fashion law expert Susan Scafidi, and we are talking about knockoffs, among other fashion-related legal issues. Let's get back to that conversation. Now, why have knockoffs become such a huge issue in recent years? How, How did that happen? 
Times have changed. I mentioned the Internet, and the speed of information technology is one of the key things that has put a great deal of pressure on designers. Again, it's not a matter of six months before a design gets on the boat from Europe, is sold to someone in New York, and a sketch artist copies it and then sends it to a manufacturer. It is instantaneous. The change in production, so much more production is centralized and at the moment centralized in Asia. And so uh, it's easy with production all centralized in one place, both the real thing and the knockoff, to have very, very quick copies. Uh, So those are two of the primary things that have created this new push for protection. But why why do we care so much about knockoffs all of a sudden? Why do we want them so much? Why are oh. they so widely available as oh. well? Why, why do consumers want the knockoffs? I think that, too, has to do with the spread of information. We know what's out there, and we want it now. We want it quickly. Um, I think that the availability of knockoffs and the quick availability of knockoffs is something that has always been there. Right? We've always had them. They're just available faster now. If you were to have um, sort of a an equivalent of copyright law that protected fashion designs. How on earth would you possibly enforce it? I think part of enforcement, Nora, is deterrence. That is to say, if a manufacturer who has been a design pirate knows that there's liability involved in making a pretty darn close copy, he or she will change up those copies a little bit, create something that it may be derivative, but just enough different to stay on the right side of the law, which ultimately gives consumers more choices. So I think that's the first thing, right? There will be a certain amount of deterrence of exact copying. There will also probably be a few lawsuits from people who can afford it in order to help define the line, what's too close to the original and what's not. Um, And to a certain extent, it's no intellectual property is 100% enforceable. If it were, we wouldn't see counterfeit handbags and DVDs down on Canal Street. So to a certain extent, we won't be able to make it perfect, but we'll be able to help. So I came across your name first in an article about Payless Shoes knocking off Adidas. Tell me about that case. A very interesting case. As you know, Adidas has trademarked three stripes. It's it's classic three-stripe trademark, which it puts on virtually all of its shoes. Payless didn't copy three stripes, which is a registered trademark. That would be counterfeiting. Payless decided to use four, or sometimes two, or in one case, one and a half, but in any case, stripes on the side of athletic shoes. Now, what Payless did that additionally angered Adidas was also copy all of its designs very exactly. Now, there is little or no protection for those designs of the shoes, but there is protection for the three stripes. So, Payless came and argued that four stripes are not three, and there's a a sufficient distinction in the mind of the consumer that there should be no liability. Adidas argued the opposite and won. Won a very large judgment, in fact, uh, about $300 million, which comes out to about $100 million per stripe. Not bad. So they didn't pay less, I guess, ultimately. (laughs) No, they did not. One thing I'm curious about that you can maybe enlighten me on... um, I know that when I go down to Canal Street and to the places where sort of counterfeit items are widely available, I'm a little turned off of them because they seem to just have the labels of the brand on them so much that they look tacky. Why Why is that? 
I agree, I agree with you. I'm not thrilled about being labeled all over the place, being a walking billboard. But the reason is actually a legal one. That is to say, designers are, are protected in their labels and logos, but not in the actual underlying design of the garment or the accessory, the handbag. So what do they do? They slap logos all over the outside so that they have some legal protection. So if, counter, if Canal Street wants to copy them, they too slap the logos all over the outside. Now that, in fact, is illegal, but that's the design. Designers are reluctant to do it in many cases. I was reading a biography of Giorgio Armani recently, and he said flat out he really hadn't wanted to put his initials on the Emporio Armani line along with the Emporio Armani Eagle, but his advisors told him they had to have a strong logo so that they could have some legal protection when he was knocked off. Hence, all of those logos that neither of us particularly care for. I wonder if the people who are who are buying Armani's, the people who genuinely are into fashion and have the money to buy the really high-end stuff, aren't they turned off by all these logos? Some of them are. Of course, there are always a few people out there who like to advertise exactly whom they bought and where. Uh, it, it can be a status issue. But yes, a lot of people are turned off by those those kinds of logos all over everything. And so it's a delicate uh, dance for the designer, protection versus appeal to the non-logo crowd. What effect does this have on on their brands? Counterfeits can actually be very detrimental to a brand because they cheapen the brand. I came over to see you on the Ram van, and sitting a couple of rows in front of me was a counterfeit Louis Vuitton handbag. And the thing is, if that bag had just been walking down the street 20 paces away, I might not have known the difference. Will I then go and buy a Louis Vuitton handbag knowing that People won't know whether I'm carrying the real thing or a fake, assuming that that matters to me. Probably not. So yes, those counterfeits do translate to lost sales in some cases. There is something a little unsettling about all this, which is that I wonder about, you know, you're talking about, would I buy this this handbag if I knew that from 20 feet away you couldn't tell? Why should I care that from 20 feet away, somebody can't tell whether my bag is the really expensive bag or the cheap bag. Well, I just wrote an article entitled Fashion as Information Technology. Fit, if you will, for short, uh, because we use, we love these awful puns for our academic work. And that's that, in essence, is your answer. That is to say, fashion does communicate. And Carrying a fake can send one message. Carrying a, the real thing can send another. When from 20 paces away, I don't know the difference. The signal is blurred. And so it doesn't send the message that I might intend you to receive. Well, that's really specific. So it doesn't send the message I'm a Louis Vuitton bag wearer. It sends the message that you may or may not be one. Exactly. Exactly. It, you might wish to send the message that you could afford Louis Vuitton, that you're a member of the Vuitton tribe, if you will, that you admire the designer Marc Jacobs or perhaps his collaboration with the Japanese artist Takashi Murakami. You might be wanting to send any one of these messages. Instead, you may be sending the message, who knows, it, I may be a member of a Louis Vuitton aficionado. I may have bought the knockoff and be undermining that whole uh, enterprise. Who knows? And that's, and that's difficult when we're thinking of fashion as communicating information or attempting to. 
So how would you respond to somebody who was to say, well, why should I protect, why should I care about protecting somebody's right to communicate that information? It's it's just elitist. Intellectual property law is focused on the original creator. And it's a bit of a shame that the fact that those original creations, which give us this tremendous fashion vocabulary, are then stolen because consumers are so eager to have expressions of their own. I think there's a, a an intermediate level possible where we can protect the designer's original expression and, and, and its integrity and also allow consumers to purchase and put together and create on their own. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Just after the show this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarchy. On today's show, Understanding Transgender Children. That's ahead at 7.30. But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Susan Scafidi. Now, there's something sort of underlying all this that, to me, is pretty interesting. Talking about Payless versus Adidas or something like that, or say, you know, Prada versus Zara or whatever. If I care about the label, I'm going to go for the Prada or I'm going to go for the Adidas to a lesser extent. If I don't care about the label, I'm going to go for the knockoff. Aren't these sort of self-selecting markets? I mean, can't they live together? Well, for a while, I would say yes, for, for a long time. But unfortunately, or for, for uh, original creators anyway, the high-low mix has been very popular in fashion. Ever since Sharon Stone wore a Valentino couture skirt and a Gap turtleneck to the Oscars, that kind of mix has been very popular. So no, there's a lot of overlap in those markets now. But you bring up another issue with that question that I thought we might address, and that is the idea that the originals are all extremely expensive high-end works, and the copies are exceptionally cheap, available on the street or pretty close to it. Not always the case. In fact, Crocs, 30 bucks, knocked off for 10. Uh, so a lot of times it is inexpensive fashion that's also being knocked off. And in fact, the designers who tend to get the most upset about this are unknown designers who produce things at the middle price point, not the $2,000 handbag, but the $200 handbag, uh, which can then be knocked off for anywhere between 5 and 20% of its price. So your sympathies then are not with Calvin Klein, but with sort of somebody who might hope to be Calvin Klein one day. The nice thing about a Calvin Klein is that Calvin Klein can hide behind his trademark. And there is a group of people who will go and buy the original in order to get that trademark. That's not true for an unknown young designer. So I think that the it's the unknown designers who really need protection more than those who are already protected by their trademarks. How does, um, just out of curiosity, how does, say, um, Isaac Mizrahi or somebody like that doing a line for Target, how does that fit in with this whole picture in terms of affecting the market for fashion? Oh, I think that's wonderful. And I would like to see more of that should this legislation pass and should designers have some protection. I would like to see more of that going forward. And I think Target has really been on the forefront of it. They didn't just hire Isaac Mizrahi to do a popularly priced mass-produced line for Target. They've done short-term deals with individual designers as part of their Go International line uh, and take ask those designers to interpret 
separate. They're more expensive designs for a mass customer. So they've had Parenza Schooler, for example, come in and have had those gentlemen do a wonderful line, very similar to some of their classic, classic high-end designs, but priced for Target. They did the same thing with Debbie Kroll for handbags. She won the uh, Council of Fashion Designers of America Accessories Award. They did a deal with her. Instead of using expensive snakeskin, they used uh, a, a printed material that looked like snakeskin and did charming little evening bags, and I bought one. So I think that's that's terrific. However, Target and other stores like it only has have the incentive to do a deal with young designers if they can't just go and steal or if that designer's name already has some buzz that they can use in their marketing. Target also has a left hand, and with Target's left hand, they knocked off a design by a young designer whom I know fairly well. She opened the paper one morning and saw in the New York Times magazine section a full-page ad from Target for a handbag identical to a handbag that she had designed the previous year. Her handbag sold for slightly over $200.00. The Target version sold for $18.99, and they had never bothered to contact her in any way. In fact, Nora, she said to me, Susan, if I had $1 for every one of those handbags that Target will sell, I would be thrilled. Why didn't they just ask? They didn't need to. This line of inquiry you're involved in is very specific. How did you get into this? (laughs) It is. Uh, Well, I teach fashion law more generally, and I teach intellectual property, so the two overlap right here. But the way it started was, as part of my work in intellectual property, I'm very interested in areas that are less protected. A lot of us are concerned, and I, I too am concerned, that the core of intellectual property, the books and the paintings and the movies in the copyright area uh, in particular, have a whole lot of protection, and that protection has continued to increase both in the scope of the subject matter and especially in the time frame, the term of protection, regularly over the years. So we've, so the academy in general and my colleagues have been very focused on why we have too much protection for a lot of IP, especially a lot of copyright. So I thought it was important to ask the question, what about the stuff that's left out? What about things like fashion? What about group creativity, cultural creativity? Uh, And so from there, I ended up being very much involved with the fashion question at the same time that the industry was bringing it up again. Is there another reason you're into fashion law? Oh, I happen to love fashion as well. So so it's all also a lot of fun. Um, they're wonderful creators and very interesting people in many cases. So I've had a tremendous amount of fun getting to know them as I've gotten to learn about their concerns. So what what is fashion law other than intellectual property? What else is involved? Oh, Nora, I'm so glad you asked. When I teach fashion law, and as you know, it's the fashion law course that I teach at, at Fordham is the first that's ever been taught at a U.S. university. I hope it won't be the last. Uh, but we think about law as it affects the life, the life cycle of a garment, starting from the ideas, of course, which relate to intellectual property, all the questions of production and licensing and business financing. Uh, global issues, import-export, and some of those regulations, all the way up to wearing the garment and civil rights issues that can be involved, questions of what you can or can't wear to work or to school, for example. So we cover quite a range of issues. So just um, on the most basic level, Mm -hmm. 
Why should we care about fashion law and about protection of intellectual property of designers if we're not into fashion? Why is this important? Oh, but Nora, we're all into fashion. It's a dress code is pretty much the first code we ever learn. Boys wear blue, girls wear pink. And so it goes from there. Even a decision not to follow high fashion and its vagaries leaves us with a decision of what to wear when we when we get up in the morning, how we'll fit into our workplace or our school or anything else. Fashion is so basic to human life. It's one of the things that makes us different. Um, we create as consumers every day, and I think more and more of us are thinking about creating as designers as well. So I think it's incredibly important culturally and therefore also interesting legally. But why should I, sort of just as a, a consumer of non-brand name items, Why should I care about what happens to a young up-and-coming designer? Aren't there more important things to worry about? Well, we could always save the whales or or the energy crisis or uh, protest the bomb. We could do all of those things, absolutely. Um, There's no question that there are areas of human life that are extraordinarily compelling. But we will still be wearing clothes when we do any of those things. So it's worth paying some attention. Now I'll ask you one more question, and I'll close with this. Do you ever buy fakes? Only for research purposes. Well, Susan Scafidi is a visiting professor at Fordham Law School, and she also blogs at counterfeitchic.com. Susan, thanks so much. Thank you, Nora. It's been a pleasure. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. We would, of course, love to hear from you. Fordham Conversations is available as a podcast at WFUV.org. It's also in our audio archive, which you can also find on our website. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. And if you're so inclined, enjoy the rest of Fashion Week. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.